The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So we keep this time slot on the first Friday of every month for our uh, for our loving kindness practice group, and we're just using the time to understand, to feel into the natural, caring quality of the heart. So we often begin the way that we did today with a guided meditation and always read from the compassion notebook that sits right back there in the corner. And people can, anybody that comes through Common Ground can jot a little prayer or a note in it every as often as you want. And then we'll read from it once a month. It's just a way to feel that we're connected in community. And to remember that we're not alone, that you know, other people are going through difficulties, experiencing celebrations and joys just the way that we are. So I wanted to talk a little bit about loving kindness tonight. <laughs> and there's often a couple of different ways to approach talking about loving kindness or learning about this quality of the heart that is caring, this natural friendliness of the heart. Love can be a word that works. It works for me because it feels general and really broad, but it might not work for you. This word loving kindness, this comes from the Pali word metta, and it really is a lot more um, simple than maybe the way we think about love. Because if I asked you what love means to you, we'd probably have all have slightly different ideas. But this idea or this quality of loving kindness is just simply a heart that cares enough to connect. Right? So that word benevolence, a general sort of friendliness, a caring quality, friendliness, just kind of an easy, simple way to say yes. Kind of the way that you would get up in the morning and go about your morning routine. Just kind of do it often without a lot of resistance. It's just a yes to brushing my teeth and then a yes to taking a shower and a yes to maybe having a bite or drinking some coffee or having some tea. A yes to letting the dog out. You know, without much without hesitation or resistance, denial that we have to do these things. Just a kind of an ease to it. That's what we mean by metta or loving kindness. And so we can use our whole lives for these practices, this practice of loving kindness or any of the Buddhist even any other practices that are taught, were taught by the Buddha and that we practice here at Common Ground. We don't have to really wait for a special opportunity to come to the center on a Friday night or on a Wednesday night or whatever. But it is a way of coming together for an intentional purpose. Like all of us decided that it might be useful for us to do this, that we had some good intentions, right? We may have come here for different reasons, but we probably all decided that, oh, this might do me some good. So already, even before we got here, there is a kind of metta or loving kindness that was available that we probably didn't even notice. And this is there all the time, and we often don't see it. So we can do this cultivation of loving-kindness, kind of the way that we did today with bringing to mind in the systematic way beings and generating some good feelings in our heart, offering them out. This is a way of kind of formally cultivating metta or loving-kindness. But we can also use our regular mindfulness practice to feel into this quality of the heart that's there so often and that we often miss. So I want to talk a little bit about how that works, the second, the second path, the path of using 
our lives using our mindfulness practice, this practice of opening to the way things are, of just being aware of the way things are, what it's like to be a human being in all of the ways that we can understand what it's like to be a human being. Just using that practice of being aware to actually feel into this quality of love or kindness or loving kindness or benevolence. I'll try to use a variety of words, but please feel free to pick whichever one up works for you and drop the rest. Words can be important. They can point us towards or away from something. And so we want to get curious about what words really land for you. So there are four of these qualities of heart. The Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, these kind of four flavors of love. The first is this kind of general friendliness, caring. For me, often love is a simple way to name it, but also just the heart that cares. So sometimes when I'm walking about or going about my life, I'll just be on the lookout for the heart that cares, the heart that can say yes, or the heart that's not saying no. Right? In the absence of the absence of no sometimes can reveal this flavor of a subtle flavor of okay, like contentedness or okayness. Like, oh, I'm just I'm okay with the way things are. It feels okay to me. The heart feels okay. I feel content with the way things are for me right now. The activities that I've chosen to engage in the relationships that I've chosen to nurture, the conversations that I'm having, whatever. There's a kind of okayness, or there's no, at least a not, a no. And so this general friendliness, and then there's this other flavor of love or care, and that is karuna or compassion. And simply it's the heart that can really feel the pain of another, can really connect with what it's like to be human during difficulties. And not just human difficulties, but the heart that might break open when we see an animal friend that's having some difficulty. I have a dog that had to have some teeth pulled when my partner brought the dog home, and she was kind of still a little sluggish from the anesthesia, and her mouth was tender. The heart was just like breaking. I could even feel it right now, just the memory of that, like, oh. It's not like such a, it doesn't take an intense moment to bring that on. Sometimes it's these simple moments of like, oh, I really care, and I care that this might be hard for you. Even this recovery might be a little challenging. You're not quite at your you're not quite at your best right now. You're not jumping around, licking me. You're not your same playful self, and I care about that. That's this flavor of compassion. Even if your friend or your partner, your child or neighbor got home from work and they felt a little tired, the heart might just go, oh, yeah, I care about that, right? I see the difficulty that's there. I, I know what it's like to be tired, And the heart can care about that. Compassion, simple ways to notice compassion. And then this third flavor, this third of the four flavors, is mudita, or sympathetic joy. It's the heart that can delight in the goodness of another. So again, my dog is often an easy example. I've had many dogs in my life, and... I often credit them for teaching me how to love. It's just so easy to notice these flavors of love. And so the kind of squinty eyes, waggy tail, when we're just heading off for a walk, you know, and my heart just kind of leaps out at that, like, oh, I'm so happy for your happiness. This is your best part of your day. (laughs) Right? You know that. Or any other time when the heart is like, oh, God, that's so good for you. Look at that. 
Or when we notice somebody else being really generous. Laura was here earlier. Laura does a lot of gardening for us. And it was just so, I felt so appreciative of the generosity of the service. And lots of people do lots of things at Common Ground. It's such an easy place to kind of practice noticing mudita. Like, oh, somebody cleaned the floors. How nice is that? There's some goodness in the heart that expressed itself in this way. Somebody unloaded the dishwasher. Somebody swept the floor downstairs. Somebody cleaned the toilets. Somebody made sure the lights were on and the room was cool enough for us. All of those little gestures of kindness that this heart can really appreciate, while all of that can feel some delight in someone else's goodness of heart. And then this fourth quality, uh, upeka, or equanimity. And this is, the first three are, seem like they're in the same category, and sometimes this fourth one can seem like it's in a different category. But it's really the, the force of stability in the heart. So that balance that allows the heart to keep saying yes, even in the midst of all the 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys, of our humanness. So every moment of our lives, we're walking around, just being human, doing our lives, working, engaging, connecting with other people. It's not always easy, right? And so this heart that can keep saying, yes, yes, I'm going to try to be awake. I want to be awake. I want to be awake now, even when it's hard. I want to be awake now, even when it's joyful. I want to be awake now when it feels extra complicated, when I feel confused. I want to learn how to work through this to be awake now, even when I feel imbalanced, not clear. This is the force or the strength of equanimity that that allows that to be. So these four divine abodes these places of goodness, these attitudes or emotions, I could call them, are really easily noticed in, the, in our daily lives, if we can be on the lookout for them. But they often pop out in the relational field, right? In our relationships with each other, we can start to notice the heart that really cares, easily cares, easily cares and delight, easily cares when they're suffering. And the heart that can, you know that strength of, that parental strength that really wants to help a child grow? Even if it's not your own child. But if you were out at the grocery store and a child drops something right at your feet, you might reach down to pick it up, right? Because you want to be of support. It's kind of that, you might be able to even tap into that strength of equanimity in that moment. Like, oh, this balanced energy that can really hold it all. So the Buddha talked a lot about these practices and how to cultivate this quality of caring in the heart. And the Buddha also talked about primarily talked about, offered instructions about how to practice mindfulness. So in mindfulness practice, it's kind of this interweaving of love and wisdom. This heart that can feel and open, connect, and say yes when it meets experience as it is. And most of the time, when we start to really take up, let me pull that back in. A lot of the time, when we start to practice or make a commitment to practice, what seems to show up are moments when we're caught or reactive, right? If you've been around, if you've been practicing for some time, you've probably seen this again and again. 
making a decision to lead a mindful, not, a mindful life or making a decision to be awake, right? that intention, that beautiful intention to say yes, then we are saying yes to everything. right? And some of the time, a lot of the time, we're saying yes to feeling into our natural human habits, which aren't always pleasant. You start to feel into the habits of anger and frustration and, oh, I'm aware now. I'm also aware of this jealousy or this uh, hatred or I'm aware of this painful thought, this rageful thought, this violent thought. I'm aware of this shame and this tendency to shrink. Or I'm aware of this exuberance that turns into a lot of wanting. Right? I'm aware of this craving this wanting for something I don't have, this wanting for more of something even when it ends. A lot of the time that's what we're, we're getting in touch with, these ways, all of these ways that our humanness expresses itself. And even as we were sitting here together, you probably noticed, you probably noticed again and again, maybe the mind or the heart checked out, disengaged from the practice, and then maybe there was a judgmental thought like, oh, I'm not doing it right, or I want to do it right. This is boring. This isn't what I wanted. Shelley's not Mark. <laughs> I want to do it the other way. Or this is so great, I hope it never ends. And then the bell rings like, oh, no. We start to notice the attitudes of mind that show up again and again and again, these habits that are there. We start to really be open to that. So this practice or process of watching the mind allows us to see and be with these challenging habits. And we all have them. And they're all very similar. They just show up for each of us in different degrees. Like this mind tends to lean towards aversive tendencies. And maybe that's like some of you. Or maybe it's not. Maybe your mind tends to lead towards greedy tendencies. Wanting a lot of things, craving for things. Right? Maybe even being, maybe your mind towards tends to lean towards not seeing clearly, kind of being confused or not quite there with the way, the truth of the way things are, you know. I notice this sometimes when I'll listen to the news, it's something really terrible. Or I I was recently on retreat and uh, just these ingrained habits of mind where the mind says, no, it's not like that, even though you know it's like that. (laughs) Like you hear something on the news and the mind goes like, are you sure? <laughs> Have you had that happen to you? Or you know it's true, what whoever's reporting, but you don't want to believe it, right? I was on retreat not long ago, and um, late at night, there's it's right before the 9 p.m. sit, and there was a at the retreat center. I was on the second floor. All the windows were open, and there was a bad car accident. A car, a driver hit head-on into a big redwood tree that was right in front of the property and walked away. And get this, his name was Lucky. (laughs) Yeah, he was. And I was sitting there, and when this happened, I noticed, I, I heard the squealing tires, and the mind knew, like, oh, those were tires, and then that kind of, like, bracing, and then the impact. And instantly, like, this heart, this constitution understood something. That was a car. It hit something. And then, you know what happened? Then I opened my eyes, and I was like, looking around. Did that happen? Like, looking for somebody else to confirm what the mind knew, right? There was that little bit of doubt, like, that doesn't happen on retreat. (laughs) Or something that denies the truth of experience, right? So we all have these flavors in our mind, and some of us lean more towards one tendency or another. But they're all there for all of us. They're not actually 
when we think about it like that, like, oh, everybody has experienced anxiety, just like me, it's hard to feel that this anxiety is really Shelley's. It has some... conditions that made it show up and they might be different for each of us but the anxiety itself is not really personal it arose because of something so we get into this habit of trying to when these habits arise in our heart our natural tendency is to want to solve the problem of them right So maybe some frustration or anger or jealousy or um, apathy even or fear or depression or confusion. You know, these mind states, these habits of mind that are going to show up, that show up in everybody's mind, when they show up, instead of connecting, our natural tendency is to want to solve the problem, right? So how many of you have ever, well, don't raise your hands, because probably everybody, have woken up at some, some day and you're kind of in a cranky mood? So nod your heads at that. Yeah, right? And then sometimes that cranky mood lasts a long time, right? And then at some point in the day, you know, somebody asks you, how are you or something? And you say, oh, I've been in a cranky mood all day, right? It, it seems like that's true. Because we're thinking about being in a cranky mood. And when we're thinking about being in a cranky mood, that's different than being mindful of the cranky mood. When we're thinking about being in the cranky mood, what we're actually doing is feeding that crankiness again and again and again. And as soon as it goes away, then the thinking about being in the cranky, cranky mood kind of cranks it back up again. right? So it might seem like it's happening all day, but what's actually happening is we're thinking about that crankiness, strengthening the crankiness. We're, we have completely forgot, forgotten about our intention to be mindful. So we think about the crankiness and the things that make us cranky and how we don't want to be cranky and what we're going to do to stop being cranky or how it's somebody else's fault that we're cranky and all of these things that are happening in work or at home or with our friends that are making us cranky. And every time that happens, it just feeds the crankiness. So the crankiness grows in this moment, and then it dies down, and we forget to notice that there's no more crankiness until we remember that we've been cranky all day, and then it comes up again, and it goes down, then it comes up again, until at some point at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it feels like, well, I've just been cranky since the time I woke up. Has that ever happened? It happens like that sometimes. So it's good to remember that this is normal human beings do these kinds of things they're not they're kind of they're not useful it's not useful for the mind to feed the crankiness because that crankiness doesn't feel good right but it's actually that strength that feeds the crankiness the strength of that reactivity is actually undermine is actually uh, reinforced by this belief that I have to do something about this, that this crankiness is a problem that's being inflict- afflicted on me, and I have to solve the problem of crankiness. Right? But remember that this is just crankiness is just normal. Would anybody say that there's a human being who hasn't been cranky? Well, probably everybody's been cranky. Right? We can call it different things, frustrated, irritated, agitated, a little off, a little not quite kind, a little not quite feeling my life, whatever it is. Right? But every human being has experienced that. So we forget that, oh, this is just a result of this crankiness arose because of something and it will pass and it's not actually personal. It's just here... And all I have to do is watch it. And if I'm mindful, if I use my mindfulness practice, I might actually watch it fade away. And I might actually see the gaps. We forget all of that. And we buy into this idea that we have to solve the problem of this affliction. Right? And just using crankiness as an example, 
but it could be any difficult emotion, any unpleasant emotion, anything. And so what we're doing with our mindfulness practice is deconstructing that framework. Like, oh, asking, the, do we actually have to solve the problem? Does it actually make us happier to solve the problem of this anxiety? Does that make me happier? Does it make me happier when I choose a distraction every time anxiety arises? Does it actually impact the anxiety? Well, and some, sometimes it does, right? Sometimes we need to use skillful means to support our life. Sometimes it's useful to take a break from whatever is whatever activity is uh, this anxiety is fueled by, or the mind's relationship to the activity actually, and maybe do the dishes or do some laundry or something that reminds the mind that there's another there's other experience to, to notice. So sometimes that's actually useful. But the problem with that strategy is that the mind never gets to know what it's like to be connected. It's always searching for something else, searching for a way out. And at some point, that strategy will not work anymore. Right? And even if we haven't seen that yet, we can... Imagine that the body will age and at some point there's nothing we can do that there just may be pain in the body. There might not be a a way to resolve the problem of the aging body. We see this when we're sick. We get a cold or get the flu or something. And there might be some things we can do to help ourselves feel a little more comfortable. But at some point we have to accept that the body is just doing, acting out its nature and we don't have control over what happens here. So this practice leads us to a different kind of framework, a framework that is more sustainable long-term. And so this mindfulness practice allows us to learn to connect with the truth of our lives to learn to accept our whole self, every aspect of who we are. And the process of doing that, the process of saying yes, training in this capacity, it's actually building capacity to say yes, in every moment that the heart learns to do that, there's a little, we actually tap into a little bit of love. It's a different relationship with experience. The power of mindfulness to cultivate a different relationship to all of our human experiences, to experience in general. It begins to help this practice of mindfulness, this practice of cultivating love, cultivating a habit of yes, begins to help us see that there might be a different way to be than always needing to search for a way out to solve a problem, to get out of this predicament. So this is a kind of stepping back from experience, right? That engaging, that thinking about, trying to figure out how to get out of this grows those reactive habits but this stepping back, this leaning back and noticing the habits of mind that are there, noticing this tendency to want to control or to want to deny, this tendency to want to avoid or say no, noticing these tendencies also allows us to see 
a little more clearly into their the truth of experience itself. Like, oh, once we get close to, I'm going to talk about anxiety quite a lot because that's something that I've worked with. It's been my lifelong teacher. <laughs> so this, in moments, being able to say yes to the truth of anxiety, like, oh, the body feels like this. Saying no feels like this. That's really what it feels like. Like anxiety about having to give, having the opportunity to give, to offer the Dhamma, to offer a Dhamma talk. Kind of feels like the heart, that anxiety about that is like the heart is saying no to something. No to what? Like this possibility of vulnerability or lack of safety, saying no to, like saying I want safety, I want comfort. Like that anxiety is about protection. So this capacity to say yes to meet that experience allows me to see how, in moments at least, it can can really feel like, oh, anxiety isn't here all day long. Like I, I don't actually feel the impact of anxiety right this moment. So then I start to see, like, oh, yeah, anger, anxiety, a cranky mood, fear. These things all come and go. So maybe I don't have to be so afraid of feeling the impact of anxiety because I understand that it's impermanent. It's not going to be here forever. I get confused and I think it's going to be like this forever and it's really going to be hard and something terrible is going to be ha- happen or whatever anxiety leads me to believe, but that's the nature of anxiety. But when I really look, I see like, oh yeah, look at this. It's not here right now. And actually I can get even more interested in that and go, well, it's not here right now and it's not here for some of you right now. And actually, it might be here for some of you right now, and that means that I'm not alone, right? It actually means that I'm more connected than I think, and it means that I don't hold, I don't, I don't, I'm not holding down the corner of anxiety. It kind of is a human, natural human tendency. And in those moments of being able to really feel into the truth of, especially of difficult experiences, we can kind of feel that quality of allowing that's there. The heart that goes like, oh, let me just try. Have you had that experience where you felt into that? Like, oh. You've probably, you may have had those experiences, you probably had those experiences when we were sitting. Especially in the beginning when you're Settling in, you know, the mind is awake, right? You made the commitment, the intention to come, you sat down, the meditation starts, the mind is, can be somewhat interested. Okay, what's going to happen, right? There's that interest that's there. And so the mind, the heart might connect with the way it is, like, oh. And we probably missed that subtle quality of allowing that's there in those moments, that yes, that yes. That yes, that is love, that is metta, that is kindness or friendliness. That yes, that says, or that quality of love that says, my whole human self gets to be here. That's what we can look out for in our lives. It's the equivalent of unconditional love. And when if we ask each other, what is unconditional love? You would probably say something like, to be totally accepted just for the way I am. Isn't that what we want from other people? When we want unconditional love, we want that. To be accepted, all of our flaws, all of our imperfections, all of our foibles, our mistakes. We want to be seen Right? We want to be witnessed. We want to be known. We want the good to shine through too. 
But this is these moments of allowing, of saying yes to experience, however it is, the difficult moments, the mundane moments, every moment of allowing, that quality of allowing, when the heart says yes, it's letting a little bit of that unconditional love grow, develop, strengthen. So it's not so there's this path of cultivation, this path that we can intentionally cultivate this quality, these qualities of love, these four flavors of love, and this other path where we can learn to connect with the truth of experience, to learn to just be awake in our lives, not just because it's not that easy, but we practice it in simple ways so that we can learn and develop the habit of awareness. And when we're doing this, we're also cultivating love. Especially if we can learn to tune in to that quality of yes that's there in moments. And we don't have to pick the most profound moments to say, well, can I do this? You know, Oh, the heart can't do it now. It must not be able to. We can just pick these really simple moments, like the one I just described. You come into the hall... There's some interest in being awake. The meditation starts, and you notice some things. You notice the way the body is, or the temperature of the room. Or maybe you notice feeling a little tense, and then you notice relaxing, right? Every moment when the heart notices, like, oh, being a little tense, and the natural tendency is to relax. It let that tension in, and then it softened. Right? That letting go is such a beautiful thing. That letting go. And it's in that moment of letting go that the heart realizes, like, oh, I don't have to rest in my reactivity. Every moment of letting go. Right? Every moment of note being willing to connect with the truth of anxiety until the heart sees its release then it knows, like, oh, I don't have to rely on reactivity alone. I don't have to rely on that. It's not the only way. But that happens if we can include all parts of ourselves, all parts of our humanness in our practice. I love this quote from Alice Walker, who is a longtime Uh, in addition to being a prolific and exceptional human being, prolific writer and exceptional human being, she's also a very long-time meditator, practitioner. She says, No person is your friend who demands your silence or denies your right to grow. Yet, how often do we demand that of ourselves? Like We we say, I'm going to be a mindfulness practitioner, and we tell our hearts, if you do everything right, and that means if you, that means heart, if you're able to express love and kindness, but not judgment, not fear, not anger, those things are off limits, right? That's kind of what we tell ourselves. We want those challenging experiences to be silenced. Put some conditions on the heart. But that's not unconditional love. Love is radical inclusion. It's the biggest, giantest yes there is. Everything belongs. When we are cultivating awareness, we're cultivating unconditional intimacy with all things. wanted to save some time for a discussion. And I think I'm done hearing myself talk. <laughs> I'd love to hear something from you. Comments, questions, reflections, objections, suspicions, feistiness. It's all welcome.
Hi, I'm Leah. I just wanted to uh, ask the question. There's points in my life where it seems like there's one particular thing that drives me nuts. I can't even imagine it going away without eliminating that situation. You know, like something at work, a person that is in you know a class of yours. It's like we get fixated on that one thing, and it becomes. It doesn't even matter what they're doing or what's happening. It seems like that emotion is constantly just associated with that thing at all points in time. I was wondering if you can talk about the, you know, how to deal with those type of situations. I mean, it's easy to recognize the, you know, anxiety or fear or anger that's coming up, but I can't seem to disassociate it with the the actual event that's happening or the, the person that's associated with it. Yeah. So the mind has these, this is what the mind does. It makes these associations so that it can keep, so that we can keep ourselves safe, right? So that's, so we don't want to demonize even the obsessive mind because the, the mind that makes connections can protect itself, can keep itself safe, right? We can, that's how we preserve our, take care of ourselves, right? We learn that um, when the water's hot, I don't stick my hand in it because it's going to burn my hand, right? So when the water's hot, I remember that. It's necessary. So using our mindfulness practice to not have to solve the problem of the obsessive mind, like that quality of love that goes, oh, yeah, this is needed. It's a a strategy. The mind's obsessiveness is a strategy. It's a self-protective strategy, just like anxiety is. This heart can naturally be reminded of that. It's not even something that it feels like Shelley's doing anymore, because it's just a habit that's been learned, like, oh, this is just a confused strategy to take care of yourself. It's not needed right now, right? I'm not in danger right now. I don't need to feel anxious or afraid, but this it's just a natural expression of all of the causes and conditions, experiences that I've had for a very long time, childhood and maybe even before that, you know, ancestral experiences, cultural experiences, social experiences. All of these experiences, conditions coalesce in a, a single moment, right? It's not personal. It's just a natural unfolding a natural expression. So this is the coming together of the obsessive mind is like that too. So any way that we can learn how to not hate the obsessive mind is going to be a good thing. So learning how to not make a project or a problem out of getting rid of or somehow rejecting the obsessive mind like really learning how to accept, like, oh, the excessive, obsessive mind is like this, and this is how it feels. And once the heart can really, that habit might be, like, sometimes these habits are ingrained, and they will be with us for a long time. I can look back through my entire childhood, and I can see the seeds of anxiety that have been planted all along. So it feels nothing short of a miracle that I can actually talk in front of a group today, and this human expression still understands anxiety, right? It still knows anxiety in regular intervals daily. (laughs) And that might just be there, right? But more and more, I've learned to accept that as a teacher and see the Dharma pop in moments uh, with this teacher, right? So we each are going to have our own particular teacher, the obsessive mind, maybe the angry mind, or the incessant problem solver, the incessant planner, or uh, the depressed mind, or the disconnected mind, or whatever, right? We're all going to have something, some kind of mind that shows up with some frequency for each of us that we get to work with. So in doing that, we can have the attitude that we don't have to solve the problem of this mind in this lifetime. What about if we learn how to accept, be with, connect with, understand from this mind, this one that's here? Because it's the hating that mind, wanting it to die, that 
is really the problem. Right? That is so painful. To, it is so painful to be in that pattern of hating anxiety. Like it's hating anxiety, hating myself, hating my life. This is unworkable. I'm never going to, you know, it's just a slippery slope, all of those ideas. Like I, can't, I cannot live with, that's how it feels. I can't live with this mind state. So I know that trap. It doesn't help. So learning how to connect with the truth of each and every mind state that's there, each and every emotion, right? And being willing to use our strategies. Like I still do the dishes sometimes if the mind gets whipped up into some anxious pattern that doesn't feel like, you know, that doesn't feel that useful to stay with. Sometimes we need to refresh the awareness by doing something else, by purposefully directing the awareness to another activity, engaging another activity, doing something that's going to be soothing so that the mind remembers, like, oh, yeah, it knows how to, uh, it knows how to re-regulate. It knows how to come back to some balanced state. That's really what we're learning from those activities when we purposefully direct the attention. So it's okay to use skillful means just to keep ourselves balanced, regulated, we have to do this. And then in moments when it's possible to just use the practice to get close to our lives in every experience. And we, we don't get to choose our teachers often, do we? Sometimes. But then you come here and I'm here. <laughs> Thanks, Leah. Good evening. I find it's difficult to say what's in my heart because I can't be sure if it's going to be helpful or harmful. You can't be sure if naming it is going to be helpful? I can't be sure if it'll if saying it will be helpful or harmful. Mm-hmm. You mean when you say it to yourself? When I say anything. Physically say it out loud? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes we don't know. I don't know either. But I do know that what feels useful is to watch my mind when I'm experimenting with what to do. Because we often don't know what to do about much. We just use our past experience We use our instincts, our intuition, our decision-making skills, whatever they are, and then we make a choice. Do that. I'm going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. And then we can watch. Again, it's that reframing from trying to prevent or avoid or solve a problem of whatever we're trying to solve or it's using our life as a canvas for learning. And it's not easy. I think therapy is a meditator's friend. And I've done a lot of therapy in my life. And I can really feel this tension, especially when my job is during a session to talk, right? And I don't quite know. Is this going to be useful? Is there speeding something? Is this going to be useful to talk about it? Because it kind of loosens up something. It reminds me that this is impermanent. This experience has come and gone or is leaving. It reminds me of my own capacity and strength. Or is it going to be challenging? and somehow feed the my neurotic tendencies, just as an example. We don't, we don't really know. But it's, I know it's useful to have trusted people in my life. I think it's useful for all of us to have trusted people in our lives, whether it be those people we live with, or friends, or therapists, or spiritual friends or dharma teachers that we can talk to in confidence 
to explore this territory of how to be vulnerable and how the expression of vulnerability is useful in our service of our own awakening. Because it certainly seems that way, that talking and listening reminds us of our connectedness, of our similar human habits. And it can loosen up that tension that often we feel around, this is mine, this is a problem for me, nobody else is like this, right? nobody else is ever going to understand or accept me or love me. But once we can, I have learned that that sometimes falls away in moments when I do connect, when I am able to connect with the truth of this and offering it to someone else, like, oh, yeah, in moments. It really feels useful, like this vulnerability is not going to kill me. I learned something about my own strength. Time for maybe one more. Uh, Shelly, you talk, oh, by the way, and my name's Rob. Um, you talked about our animal friends. Uh, you talked about your dog specifically. I, I suppose the type of animal friend doesn't matter that much, but I have noticed that for myself, when I am having some difficulty with the loving kindness practice, and if I start with my animal friend, my heart just melts. And it's so much easier to let any and everybody in. So, thank you. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah, that is really true for me too. It's hard to start with a, somebody who talks. <laughs> <laughs> The mind to the heart just <laughs> the heart just finds all kinds of exceptions sometimes. Like, no, I don't want to love this person because last Tuesday, whatever. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so we'll hand it over to Chelsea for any announcements. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.